This is history for the future. What we can learn from the TRC with Pippa Green. In 1985, Wendy Orr, newly qualified from the University of Cape Town as a medical doctor, became possibly the first doctor employed by government to blow the whistle on the widespread abuse and torture of detainees. It led to a, until then, unprecedented legal case against the police when she applied to the Supreme Court for an order to restrain them from further torturing and abusing detainees. Many of them were children picked up in the first state of emergency declared shortly after the funeral of the Craddock Four the civic leaders from Craddock, who were abducted and murdered by the security police. She was appointed to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 1995 and worked on the Reparations and Rehabilitation Committee. She is currently working at Standard Bank as head of Group Inclusion, a portfolio that covers corporate social investment, employee health and wellness and diversity and transformation. I met her in her office in Johannesburg and asked her to reflect on the role of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think the strengths of the Commission were that it created a structured platform for investigating what had happened during the period under review and a structured way in which the victims of human rights violations could be heard because I think that was one of the the hugely damaging aspects of the years of apartheid apart from what actually happened that when victims tried to be heard, they were told that they were lying or, you know, they were denied or told to go away, etc. So, so I do think that was a really important component of the Truth Commission's work, was, was providing a, a, a structured, formal way for the investigation, but then also for giving victims a voice. She recalled her first encounter with victims of torture when she was a young district surgeon working in Port Elizabeth shortly after a state of emergency had been declared. Hundreds of people, many of them youths, had been detained. She did what no other state doctor had done before. It was 1985. Um, I was working as a district surgeon in Port Elizabeth and a state of emergency was declared in July of that year. I mean, hundreds, literally hundreds of people were detained in the PE and the Eastern Cape. And part of my job in the prisons was to provide them with medical care. Um, loosely <laughs> if I may say and it became evident to me almost immediately that very very many of the people who I was seeing um, had injuries and when I asked them what had happened it was either that they had been you know assaulted at the time of detention or otherwise taken for interrogation and tortured. I mean after a long and circuitous sequence of events I was supported by Cheadle, Thompson and Hayson, the legal firm, in bringing an urgent application to the Supreme Court in Port Elizabeth, revealing the evidence of torture and asking for protection for the detainees. And it was unprecedented. Nothing like this had ever happened. Certainly no person in government employment, um, no doctor had ever come forward in this way to, to reveal what was going on behind closed doors. Did that give her a sense of what to expect at the TRC when years later victims of abuse came forward to tell their stories? In a way, yes. But what struck me in being on the Truth Commission was I don't think I had been aware of the extent of the violations. So it wasn't just 
detainees. It was, you know, every little township that we went to across the breadth and width of South Africa had been impacted in some way or another. So I think for me that was something of a surprise. Was, you know, I'd known what was going on. I knew about the high-profile cases like, you know, the death squads and the hit squads and Flakplas and so on. But the fact that so many people's lives had been impacted struck me. It was a revelation to many South Africans. I think certainly for the majority of white South Africans, it was something they had been unaware of, willfully or, you know, deliberately, I, you know, it's it's, it's hard to say. I think the excuse of, oh, I didn't know, was used rather often. Um, But undoubtedly there were news blackouts, you know. I I lived with an ITN journalist, you know, he was my partner for the latter part of the 80s, so I think I you know, had access to news and information, which the majority of South Africans didn't have access to. What impact did the TRC's report make? The Truth Commission's strength was in its process. So the fact that we had the hearings, that we gave people a voice, that we went out to, you know, far and wide in every little township in South Africa and took statements, so so it was a process strength. Whereas the, the report's strength, I think, was in... And it probably could have been shorter. I was, I was going to say in making accessible the information to, to a wide audience. But yes, it was very long. And also, its strengths should have been in its recommendations if they had been implemented. So I think the recommendations were great. But, you know, at the time, I would have stood by them and said, absolutely. But now, you know, 15, 16, 17 years later... When so few of them have been implemented, I kind of ask myself, well, you know, what was it all about, really? The TRC was a creation of statute. So why were so many of its recommendations not followed? Was it a lack of will or of capacity, I asked her? Probably a combination, to be fair. Perhaps one of the strengths of the Truth Commission also was that we ended up annoying every political party and being taken to court by every political party. But I think what I found particularly upsetting was right at the end when we were about to deliver our report and the ANC, you know, started raising objections. And I think that kind of soured the acceptance of the process. So so, so I think the view of the ANC was tainted because they felt that we had made unfair findings against them and we shouldn't have found them guilty of human rights violations, etc., etc. And I think that impacted on the political will to implement the recommendations. So I think there was a lack of commitment on the part of um, the ANC and, and then a lack of capacity, infrastructure, know-how, resources in terms of, of actually making it happen. Because they were, I mean, they were they were quite ambitious and aspirational recommendations. But I suppose what what I regret is they didn't in, even seem to be a an engagement with the recommendations to say, well, okay, we can't do everything, but what can we do? So even that was lacking. Now, when you look back all these years later, what do you think is the state of reconciliation in the nation? I personally don't think that the truth. Commission should ever have been styled as a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was never going to be delivered. And it never could be delivered by a commission. You know, I think certainly there were there was a contribution we made, 
but it needed a much broader societal endeavour to bring about reconciliation. I'm not saying there weren't individual reconciliations and some really powerful moments of victims meeting perpetrators and so on, but to kind of you know, deliver reconciliation for South Africa was never going to happen. All these years on, I think people, I don't know, are just kind of getting on with it rather than actually looking for, for real reconciliation. The, there's a sense of, you know, it's over, it's done, we need to move on. But the fact that there are flare-ups like the xenophobia, you know, and the occasional racist issues show that, in fact, we haven't reconciled. And I don't think things are any better now than they were in 1994. In fact, I think they may even be worse. So what do we do with that? How do we construct a future? Post-94 was very much a honeymoon phase, I suppose, but there was a sense of goodwill and hope and belief in the future, which I, which I personally don't experience anymore. And I think people are just kind of putting their heads down and saying, well, you know, I've, I've got to get ahead for myself and make a living for me and my family. So that's what I'm going to engage with, rather than thinking more broadly about what's going to work for the country and for society at large. So I think there's almost a, a kind of a hunkering down and a more of an individualization of, okay, how can I make this work for me, rather than you know, how do we take South Africa forward? Where, and there was a sense of that kind of 94, early, you know, immediately after the election. What do you think happened? I mean, what mistakes were made in, in the intervening years? I think the ANC has, has failed to move from a struggle movement to a ruling party and to, to, to make the adjustments that are necessary in order to lead a country with with maturity and care and thoughtfulness. What about the role of civil society? It played a major role in the collapse of apartheid. What can it do now? And I think that's a huge loss. The civil society NGO movement in South Africa in the 1980s was so strong and so powerful and so cohesive. And even though there were differences, there was kind of a common cause that we all understood and supported. And, and I do. I think that's a huge loss. And it would be fantastic if that spirit and movement could be found again. Is there a way we could find a common mm -hmm. cause in South Africa again? What is that cause? What is our goal? It's hard to articulate clearly, but, but delivering on, on the hopes and the dreams that we had 1994 and, you know, the, the few years thereafter. It's kind of looking back and, and, and saying, you know, so much seemed possible at that time, but so little has actually come to pass. So, so how do we redefine the possible and find a way of, of working towards it? Wendy Orr works in a bank now, a fact she herself is a little surprised by, but it gives her a chance to see the economy at work. What place might young people have in a future South Africa? I do think that currently young people feel quite pessimistic about the opportunities of getting a job. And if you look at, I mean, unemployed graduates, never mind, you know, unemployed matriculants and unemployed people who never even got to matric. And I think if you can't offer young people the promise that they are going to be economically, you know, self-sufficient and be able to have a home and 
have a family and be able to support that family, then, then we've lost something really fundamental about the essence of what makes up a society. Because I think that, that starts to undermine everything. It undermines family, you know, it undermines um, sense of self-worth. And these are not even the parents who suffered under yes. apartheid. It's a new generation. Which is who I think believed that everything would be so different. So what could the government do to lift us out of what seems to be a mire? I don't know about a thing that could be done, but a characteristic that I just feel is lacking is, is integrity. So, you know, as, as long as we have leaders who don't have integrity and who don't put the needs of the nation ahead of their own interests, and I don't just mean political leaders, I mean, you know, business leaders and others as well, um, I think it's going to really be a struggle. When you talk about that as well, there, there might be different drivers, though, for political leaders and business leaders. Yes. And the, the integrity for political leaders is that you've got to have clean government. Yes. Um, yeah. Do you think that we have that? No. Why not? That's a hard question to answer. You know, I, I think part of it is you know, a sense of entitlement, a way of of being which actually says, you know, I deserve to get something out of this as well, rather than only think about what's, what's important for others. I think the individuals we have, leading government at the moment and in the cabinet, with a few notable exceptions, are not prepared to, to veer from the Jacob Zuma line, quite honestly. So if we need leaders with integrity, how do we go about it? Do we need another commission to bring South Africans together? I don't think another commission would add any value, to tell you the truth. And, uh, you see, I, th- I, th- I think part of the problem with the TRC was also that people thought, oh, well, the TRC will handle it, you know, they'll, they'll reconcile the country and deliver us to a new place rather than taking rather than developing a sense of personal agency and saying what do I need to do in order to take the country forward so I think another commission might just yet again be well let's outsource responsibility to this group of people rather than actually engaging ourselves I I think what, what I sense is I don't know almost a political naivety amongst the population of faith in a party which delivered liberation and therefore, well, you know, we'll just carry on voting for them rather than a real interrogation of what that party is doing, how it's delivering, you know, is the leadership appropriate, etc. Now, now I don't know how we suddenly deliver political education to all and sundry, but, but I think as a society under apartheid, we, we certainly had the vast majority of people didn't question. It was very authoritarian, very patriarchal, and I'm not sure that much has changed in terms of that, you know, kind of you toe the party line, you do what you're told, and you, you, you don't veer away from that. So, so that spirit of healthy, constructive debate and inviting difference of opinion... Um, doesn't exist in South Africa on the whole. Also, she has recently revisited some of the testimony that was shown on TV at the time, and it kindled a different kind of feeling in her from when she was actually serving on the commission. While I was on the commission, I kind of, I coped and I held myself together because I had to, you know. The the, the job of work to be done and I couldn't be 
dissolving in tears and having emotional breakdowns every other day. But I found it incredibly difficult to watch some of the testimony in particular. And I'm wondering if there isn't a way of using that footage and of using the process and the stories to reopen the kinds of conversations which should have happened then and probably didn't and to kind of open the door again to how do we create the country that we so desperately wanted then and still want now. That was Wendy Orr interviewed in Johannesburg on the 1st of July 2015. I'm Pippa Green in Cape Town, produced by Jean-Michel. Thanks to the Cape Town Youth Choir for the use of their musical performance of Senzani Now. You've just listened to History for the Future, what we can learn from the TRC. Keep listening for more insights into the state of reconciliation in South Africa, then and now.